I invite you to turn with me now in your Bibles to Paul's letter to the Philippians. This morning we'll be back in Philippians chapter 3. A week ago, we began the sermon by thinking for a bit about the future. And perhaps you can remember a few of the main questions I asked. One, what do you hope for in the future? Two, what do you hope will happen to you in the future? Three, what do you hope will be true of you in the future? And as I said last week, I'm not asking about what we hope for perhaps 5, 10, or even 20 years from now. That's not what I have in mind by the future. Instead, I'm asking us to think about the future as in the last day or the final day, the day of Christ, lots of different ways this is described the day when Jesus comes again, or the day on which we stand before God at the judgment seat. What do you hope for on that day? What do you hope will happen to you? What do you hope will be true of you on that day? And we looked carefully last time through Philippians 3, verses 8 through 11, to see how Paul might have answered those same questions. And today I want to think through two more questions about the future together. One, how should our future shape how we look at the present? And then two, how should our future shape how we look at our past? And here again, I'm asking us to think about the future as in the last day. Or as Paul talks about in this text, the resurrection of the dead. How does that future hope that I hope we all have shape how you look at your past or how you want to live now. Okay, now for a quick illustration, just of how sometimes there are certain future events that are so important to us that they actually not only change what comes after, they actually shape the days even before they arrive. I want want you to just think for a moment about a couple, maybe a couple that you know who recently got engaged. Okay, now, unless I have missed some news, where is Joe here? Joe and Sarah? There they are, right there. I believe, I believe that Joe and Sarah are the most recently engaged couple here at the church. A May wedding on the way. Maybe I've missed someone, or maybe somebody got engaged like yesterday. But you, you don't need to stare at them or only think of them. And you can think of any engaged couple you've known, or perhaps back to your own story if that applies to you. Okay. And just think for a moment from that time of engagement of how much that future day or date impacts the lives of those who are engaged. Now, now of course, the wedding day itself will be momentous and memorable, and it will obviously change their lives dramatically after that special day arrives. But the future doesn't just change things. That future day doesn't just change things afterwards. It changes many, many things before it ever arrives. Simply knowing that this day is on the horizon dramatically changes the lives of the couple, even now in the present. So you think of maybe interactions you've had. That day is always on their mind from the engagement on. It probably finds its way into almost every conversation you have with them. Uh, the couple begins to live more and more in light of that wedding day, especially as the day is drawing near. 
Not only that, that future day begins to shape decisions about many, many things, you know, such as housing or cars or education or finances or vacations and what the next year is going to look like and much, much, much more. In fact, one of the humorous things that I saw, especially seeing this in the college setting where I taught for a long time, is how often guys that never went to the gym started to go to the gym with great regularity. Okay, most of us have witnessed things like this. Uh, in the lives of others, some of us maybe remember things like this in our own lives. Of course, you could, you could develop those thoughts a lot further, but, but it's just enough to illustrate that certain future events have power to change how we think and how we live now. And that's really the theme as we finish this study of Philippians 3 verses 1 to 16. You can think back to the last sermons. We talked about Paul's look at the past, present, and future. And now as we come to the end of the text, we see the convergence of all three of those things. You begin to see how Paul's future hope relates to and connects to his past and his present and how he looks at those. And to see some of this, I want to do what I've done every time in this, in this text, and that's to read the whole text from Philippians 3, verses 1 through 16. Our focus will be on verses 12 to 16 today, but I want to read one more time through the whole passage. So Paul says, Philippians 3, verse 1, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, so that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Now, that's, that's where we've been so far. Paul talks about the past, present, and future. Now, today's text, verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let's hold true to what we have attained. 
So, first sermon on this text, we looked at the first seven verses where Paul focuses on his past. He lays out the privileges that he had and the accomplishments in his life. And that leads to verse 7 where he says, but whatever gain I had from all that, I counted it all as loss. In the second and third sermons, we looked at verses 8 to 11. We focus first on Paul's talk about the present and especially his greatest ambition in life, which was what? To know Christ more intimately, more deeply, more personally. And then last week, we're in the same verses, but we looked especially at what Paul said about the future, what he hoped for in the future. And what did he hope for? He hoped to be found on that day in Christ. He hoped to stand before God having the right kind of righteousness. And he hoped specifically for the resurrection of the dead. He longed to be one of those whom God would grant a new resurrection body, a body just like Jesus's, so that he might live with Jesus and reign with Jesus forever. That was his hope and longing. Now for today, I want to try to think about how the past, present, and future converge in the last verses of the text. How did Paul's future hope shape how he looked at the past? And how did it shape how he lived in the present? So look back at verse 12, where he says, Not that I have already obtained this, or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. Okay, think, how does the future connect to how he looks at his present life and at his past? And the first thing I want to point out is Paul's humble recognition that his future transformation is still in the future. To say that another way, Paul has not arrived. This is how he understands his present situation. He longs to experience the resurrection of the dead. He longs to be fully and finally free, to be fully conformed to the image of Jesus. And yet he humbly admits two times in the text, I am not there yet. Verse 12, not that I have already obtained this or I'm already perfect. Paul knows that one day he will be perfect. One day he will be resurrected. One day he will take hold of all the things for which Christ took hold of him. But he knows that the future day is still in the future. In verse 11, he says it again. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. Now, since Paul says that twice in a row in the text, a lot of people suggest that there may have been some in Paul's day who were claiming the opposite about themselves. In other words, there may have been some claiming that they had reached some higher level of spiritual maturity, something comparable 
to what we will all attain at the resurrection of the dead. It's very possible that that's in the background of this and why he says this twice in the text. But either way, that sort of teaching is around today. And Paul completely disagrees with that kind of view. I mean, think of it, even though he's been running hard after Jesus for 30 years, he says two times very clearly, I have not arrived. He had seen God do many things through him and in him. And yet he knew there was so much more still to come. Better things were still in store. And for us as well, it's true, and Paul will talk about this throughout his letters, we already experience today many of the blessings of the age to come. But we do not experience all of them yet. Our future is still in the future. And this is really the key point for us here in this part of the text, where we're being reminded that not one of us here has arrived. All of us here who know Christ today, the best way we can describe ourselves is growing Christians. That's what we are. Not one of us here has arrived. None of us has already attained what we all will attain at the resurrection of the dead. And and I just want to think about that. What, what does, okay, let's suppose we agree with that. We should, okay. What does recognizing that produce in us? What should it produce in us? What kind of things should this view of ourselves lead to in a church where everybody in the church recognizes I have not arrived. That admission should lead to true humility in all of our hearts, and it should lead to a lot of kindness and patience with each other in the church. This is not to say that we should excuse our sins or our failures as Christ's people, but if you're looking for a perfect church, one where everyone has arrived, it is not here, and you will never find it in this age. None of us is already all that we will be, and no church is already all that it will be. So may God continue to cultivate a spirit of kindness, forbearance here, where we're eager to forgive each other because we all will need it. And when we're eager to encourage each other to just keep running. So the first thing I want to point out is Paul's humble recognition that the future is still in the future. The second thing I want to point out is how the future shapes how he looks at his past. Look at verse 13 again. Brothers, I I don't consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. So what do you see about the past? 
Paul is committed to do what with his past? To forget it. Now, what is he getting at by saying that? I mean, because of course Paul didn't forget everything about his past, as in the things that happened to him or that he did. In fact, earlier in this same passage, he listed out his past privileges and accomplishments. So what's he talking about? What he's communicating, I think, is that he refuses to live in the past or to rest on what is already behind him. And my pastor growing up in uh, the sticks of Pennsylvania, he also happened to be a pilot. And I can remember him saying in church on many occasions, this was like one of his favorite sayings, something he had learned in pilot school. He said, the runway behind you does you no good. I heard that so many times growing up. The, you have to, maybe you have to think about that. But the runway behind you does you no good. Okay, that is not to say that our past don't matter or don't shape us. They certainly do. And it's, again, it's not to say we actually forget the content of everything that has ever happened to us in the past. We don't and we can't. But we don't live in the past. We don't rest on it. We live in the present with our eyes looking forward, not backward. Paul says it this way, this one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. And I want to think about it more. What was in Paul's past? Because Paul looks back at it earlier in the text, and he looks back there at his distant past. And what was in his distant past? From a Jewish point of view, he had behind him a bunch of accolades and accomplishments. But from a Christian point of view, what was in his distant past? A bunch of horrific sins and failures. I mean, do you know what he did in the distant past? He refused to rest on the accomplishments or to wallow in despair over his many failures. I mean, think about it. Paul was responsible for the death of Christians. How do you move on from that? Is that even possible? Seems like Paul was able to move on from it. Not that he forgot it happened or had no sorrow over it. I think it's only possible to move forward from something like that if you have a firm trust in the power of the blood of Jesus to cleanse you, in the promises of God to forgive you and not hold it against you anymore. That his past sins, though great, did not define him for the rest of his life. He refused to rest on what he had accomplished or despair over his failures. But, but I don't want to stop there, because okay? I want to think further in his life. In Paul's life as a Christian, what did he have behind him? He had 30 years 
almost, of incredibly faithful service. 30 years of church planting all over the world. 30 years of fruit. And what did he refuse to do? He refused to rest on any of it. This one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind me and straining forward to what lies ahead. His life philosophy was one of looking ahead, not looking behind, even as an older man. And this brings us to the third way that the future shaped Paul. Verses 13 and 14, I want you to look at how he describes his present life. Verse 13 again, brothers, I don't consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Okay, what are the two descriptions of what he does in the present? I'm straining forward to what lies ahead. I'm pressing on toward the goal. In light of his hope, he's straining forward and pressing on. He's not passive in life, not lackadaisical, straining, fighting, pressing on. Even just that kind of attitude, does that describe your life as a Christian? I, I tend to be known as a fairly laid-back kind of person. And I've kind of liked that description for decades. And it's fine as a personality thing. But it's not how Paul describes the Christian longing and living to just sit back and not chase, not run, not pursue. How'd, how would you describe your Christian life? Do we long for the goal in front of us? Are we straining forward to what lies ahead? Are we running hard to obtain the prize? And by the way, what prize is Paul talking about? This text is really well known. But, and he calls it the prize of the upward call of God. What do you think the prize is? What is the great reward in front of him? And I think in context, I would say that it is the resurrection of the dead. The prize in front of us is resurrection and all that comes with it. New bodies, a new earth, deeper fellowship with Jesus than you've ever known. It's a prize that is worth running after and running for. And then this brings us to the application of the whole section. And we're going to just let Paul make the application. Verses 15 and 16. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. So in the whole section, I think more than anywhere else in his writings, Paul has laid out his heart and his own thinking. And he did that specifically to prepare us for this application. Let those of us who are mature think like this. In other words, Paul wrote it all down because he wanted us to think how he thought, to adopt his way of thinking about the past, the present, and the future. And so as we come to the end of several weeks in this, 
in this text. How does Paul's way of thinking about the past, present, and future line up with your own thinking about your past and your present and your future? What's similar? What's different? Paul's first application, let those of us who are mature think like this. But notice what he adds in the next line. He says, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Paul laid out his way of thinking, called his friends to adopt it, and yet notice that his trust is in God to keep revealing in his friends areas of life and thinking that still need to be changed. This, This reminds me that God doesn't show us all of our imperfections at once. And praise God for that, because I'm pretty sure we'd all be crushed by that. Okay? But God does continue to reveal, over time, areas where our thinking or our affections or our actions are not what they should be. And God will continue to do that for all of us because he's committed to us. And this fits right in with what Paul said at the beginning of the letter. Philippians 1, verse 6, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will continue to carry it on all the way until the day of Christ. Praise God for this, that he keeps working in us and keeps showing us things that don't line up with how Jesus lived or even with how Paul is encouraging us to think. God is always working to make us what he wants us to be, and he will never stop because he's committed to us. And this brings us to the last application in the last verse, verse 16. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Okay. We've been reminded repeatedly in the text, we have not arrived. We have not attained all that we will attain. We don't have it all together. But Paul closes with this. Make sure you hold fast to what you have attained. That's really interesting. It's like saying, don't give up the ground you've already gained. And that is a great closing challenge for us. And it's also, I think, a great encouragement. Why? It's because behind that, there is a belief that we have attained something. In other words, Paul is confident that his friends have attained some things. And he's challenging them to hold on to what they have attained. To think about this in our own lives. We are not the same people we used to be. You are not the same person that you once were. And I am not the same person I once was. Now, we admit freely, honestly, and humbly today that we do not think perfectly, that we do not see everything as we should, and that none of us is already what we will be. But that doesn't mean nothing has changed. 
or that God isn't truly changing us. He's already been changing us. He still is, and he's not going to stop. I hope you've seen it in my life. I've seen it in your lives. We have not attained all that we will, but God is doing real work in our hearts. And Paul's closing challenge is, hold on to what you have attained. So my closing words are really just to reiterate Paul's, which are a closing challenge and encouragement. Only hold fast to what we've already attained. May we, by God's grace, keep pressing on together toward the prize, but may we also never give up the ground we've already gained by the grace of God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the joy it has been to be in one of my favorite texts in the Bible for many weeks. And I thank you for how you are so committed to us that you give us texts like this so that we'll think better. I thank you for your faithful work of revealing to us areas where we need to change. And though that is uncomfortable and hard, thank you for that. Thank you for your commitment to us. And I pray that for the failures of our past or even this week, that we will, with, as Paul would have, look to Jesus, trusting his blood to wash away our sins. But I pray you'll help us not to live in the past, whether the good things or the bad. Help us to live for you now with our eyes set on the resurrection of the dead. And Lord, help us all to hold on to what we have already attained. Lord, we, we look to you for all of this. In Jesus' name, amen.